This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 90. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, we are launching a new series here called the Microcap Graduation Series. I've done about 90 interviews here on the podcast where I've interviewed some of the best investors where they discuss their investing strategies that help them be successful investors. The next evolution I always envisioned for Planet Microcap was to interview CEOs who have successfully navigated the microcap waters to either be acquired by or graduate to a small, mid, or large cap company. The goal is to portray a full picture of the micro nano cap space, from learning strategies to help you become a successful investor and to show you that there are actual real live public companies that have found success as a public micro or nano cap company. There also may be some of you listening to this that are CEOs of, or C-suite management of a micro nano cap public company or an emerging growth private company. My guests today and future guests of this series have a lot of great information that they can then provide that also led to their success and that you can learn from. Without further ado, my first guest for this series is Glenn Sanford, founder and CEO of EXP World Holdings, Inc. They are a publicly traded company on NASDAQ with the symbol EXPI. And as a quick background, EXP World Holdings, Inc. operates EXP Realty, a cloud-based international real estate brokerage firm. EXP is one of the fastest growing real estate brands in North America that currently has 18,000 plus agents and brokers on their platform. They're a tech company that from 2014 to 2018, EXPI's revenue experienced a 147% compounded annual growth rate, or CAGR. And I just want to let you all know is that all numbers that I'm relaying here are from EXPI's May 2019 investor presentation. The company went public in late 2013 as a small microcap company where it traded as low as 15 cents during 2014. And as of today, June 25, 2019, the company is trading at $10.77 per share with a market cap of around $664 million. I uh, also like to note here, I derive share and market cap information from Yahoo Finance. And I'd also like to mention at this point that for full disclosure, uh, neither SNN Incorporated or myself are owners of any shares of EXP World Holdings, Inc. I repeat, we are not shareholders, neither myself or SNN Incorporated of EXPI. This interview is for information purposes only, and I recommend that you do your own due diligence prior to making any investment decision. 
Thank you again for tuning in to episode 90, and please enjoy my interview with Glenn Sanford. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. As some of you may know, when I'm not interviewing folks for the podcast, I also host CEO video interviews and Wall Street views with investing experts for SNN's YouTube channel, SNN Network. I wanted to take a moment to invite you all to subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel. As a subscriber, you'll be the first to be notified when we publish a new CEO video interview with microcap management teams, a new Wall Street View video interview with investing experts, panels and keynote presentations from our conferences, as well as new and archived podcast interviews. Go to www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click the subscribe button. Again, that's www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click subscribe. Thank you for subscribing and for your continued support. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I would like to welcome Glenn Sanford, founder and CEO of EXP World Holdings. It's a publicly traded company with the symbol EXPI on NASDAQ. Glenn, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Hey, thank, thanks, uh, thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me on the, uh, on the call here. It's great to have you on and thank you for joining me. So uh, as I said in my intro, this is our, uh, our, our first interview for this microcap graduation series. And uh, it's, it's really a full circle because we actually did an interview with you, a video interview at a conference, I think approximately two years ago when I, you were still a microcap and uh, a lot's changed since then. It has, yeah. Uh, back a couple years ago and just as a little background, um, you know, I've uh, founded back in 2009 a, a residential real estate brokerage, and so probably two years ago, there were probably three, four thousand agents uh, or so. We ended, I think, 2017 um, with about 6,500. Now we're uh, over 19,000 real estate professionals. Um, so it's uh, it's been a it's been a rocket ride internally, but obviously. Uh, as a public company, it's been a, a bit of a, a rocket ride as well. So that's for sure, and we're about to to find out uh, every uh, aspect of that as well. Hopefully, here. So, uh, so you started to get into the background. So let's let's start there. What what is your background, and and how did you come into all of this? Yeah. So um, you know, my background um, really has been on the tech side, uh, tech and marketing. Uh, back in, and I'm 52 now, but, uh, you know, when I was even, you know, my, even in my teenage years, I was into technology, got into sales marketing, my twenties, got involved in uh, public markets a little bit in my, in my twenties. And, uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, founded a number of, uh, different companies, licked, licked my wounds over most of them. And, uh, uh, and then in 2002, actually I got into residential real estate as a licensed real estate agent while I was looking for my next project and it just turned out that residential real estate ended up being my next project. Wow. So then what, what led to your founding of EXP World Holdings and what, what was the original problem you were looking to solve? Yeah. So, uh, really it, it started pre being, um, uh, a public company, but, uh, EXP Realty, we founded in 2009 
And as a real estate professional, uh, one of the challenges is, is that you are in an industry where you're considered to be a having your own small business, but you really have a business that owns you because when you're not out actively selling and listing property, uh, you're not making any money. So it's really not a business in a traditional sense. And that was uh, being a business guy. That was something that always uh, I always thought, you know, wanted to build something that built up, you know, some residuals, some retirement, some asset value, et cetera. And that's just not really available to real estate professionals. So um, we, we, uh, the other part is in 2009, as you probably well remember, we were in the you know worst housing market that hopefully we ever see in our lifetimes, uh, where everything had basically cratered. The Fed had to come in and put them put a whole bunch of money in just to to put life support into the industry, and and we couldn't physically um, afford offices. But given the technology background we were we we uh, that I came with specifically. Uh, we thought that we could apply technology to residential real estate and actually build a real estate brokerage that didn't have any physical offices. And so we, that was the thing that we were saying, if if we were going to ask agents to leave their physical offices, what would what would need to be the necessary ingredients for them to want to do that? And so that's what we put in there. Obviously, tech forward uh, without offices, uh, our cost to operate is significantly lower than than our competition. And we then also passed a lot of that savings back to our agents and brokers in the form of a, a residual that they could receive from helping us build the business. So that was 2009, and, and uh, in 2013 we actually did a you know an RTO or reverse merger into a into a public uh, company, a shell, and um, and that time it was uh, EXP Realty International Corp. But we we since uh, renamed it to EXP World Holdings. Mm-hmm. But the primary reason why we did that, quite frankly, was so that we could actually have our agents be shareholders because we thought they would be you know interested in being um, you know co-owners in in the enterprise, and that was uh, a vehicle that we could uh, could do that with. So so that's a little bit of the sort of the historical context of of how we how we got to where we're at today. Gotcha. So, so just on the business side, you know, because there might be some people who listen to this who may not have heard of EXPI yet, you know. So, so how, how does it exactly work? You know, do uh, you, you mentioned that the real problem here that you were trying to solve and, and have a solution for is that you thought, okay, what if we had a residential brokerage where uh, agents didn't have to go to offices and, and whatnot? You know, what? Why were they going to offices? At, you know, right now when most of their business was most of their business being transacted, you know, via email, like they, they could just go anywhere and, and do what they had to do or how did that work? Yeah. So if I look at sort of 2002, when I got into the business, um, we, we still had, uh, pretty much the office was where you'd had a high speed internet. There was uh, still a lot of homes, magazines, a lot of consumers still came by real estate offices to find out where listings were, Etc. Um, in 2005 or six is when Redfin launched. Uh, so, uh, right around that same period of time, you got Zillow that had launched, Realtor.com had launched, mm-hmm. and so consumers were less and less going to the office. But then by 2008, 2009, we had high-speed internet, um, you know, in our homes. Everybody pretty much had cable modems, and and we also had 3G on our on our cell phones. So we were starting to get to the point where the office really lost its relevancy in terms of, of, of a need to go there. 
Um, a lot of the broker owners still maintained offices. They had leases. They had what ha- what have you. Also, the franchisors, uh, in order to sell a franchise, uh, need to sort of demark where that franchise is. What's the bricks and mortar footprint? And so there's still still a a legacy element to this industry, pretty significant legacy element, where there's there's still physical office infrastructure. But if you ever walk into a real estate office. Uh, you'll notice that there's nobody there. Like nobody goes to the <laughs> office. So the agents don't go there. The the office manager might go there or the broker owner um, and because they're sort of required to, to be in the office so that their agents can see them there. Uh, but the agents don't go there and the customers don't go there. So there, it's sort of a, a, a legacy element of re- residential real estate brokers. So – so Glenn, it sounds like the there's a couple headwinds that were coming in here. You know, you had your your 2008 crisis, 2009 crisis where you saw housing prices and, and good value properties, you know, really being slashed in half if not more, and also you were seeing the all these different websites coming out there, the Zillows and and uh, uh, you know uh, apartments.com, realtor, you know all these different ones that you saw that everything was starting to go more online, and there was these platforms that you could capitalize and and help brokers on the residential side. I mean, were were these the two confounding things that were happening that you finally like? Okay, it's time to really push this out there. It it, it was yeah and. Even prior to uh, 2009, my, uh, we, the previous entity that uh, w- it really was the, the same company, but we re- re- restructured it, was a company called Buyer Tours Realty. And it was a totally buyer-based real estate company that did lots of internet lead gen. Mm-hmm. And so internet, the internet really ultimately changed the whole landscape of what it meant to be a residential real estate brokerage. The other, the other part that's, that's out there um, even today is that there's very few platforms for residential real estate agents to plug into that are national in scope. And you could sort of think about Zillow as being a national platform that agents can plug into, whether they're at Remax or Keller Williams or Cobalt Banker or Independent or what have you. Um, and, but as a, uh, there wasn't really a, a platform real estate broker. Everybody else is a franchise. So if you think, think about if you go and, and, and buy a, uh, a Remax franchise, it's sort of like buying a McDonald's franchise. You're, you're a local owner, you run it sort of based on the specs that the franchise or gives you. Uh, but, uh, for the most part, it's, it's a, it's a franchise system. Um, EXP is different in that we're the first company to be nationwide, all 50 states as one company, um, and then also in provinces in Canada, and et cetera. So, so part of, that's all enabled really by the fact that we don't have offices and technology had finally empowered a new business model that we were just really kind of early adopters coming out of that that crash in, in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at, at the time of launching, I mean, what, what was the, the barrier to entry then? You know, I, I mean, it sounds like there weren't that many competitors looking to try and do this, but at the same time, it seems like you had to really have a, a, a big technology technology infrastructure in order to support the growth that you've seen. Yeah, well, we built it as we as we grew. So mm-hmm. we were we you know a lot of people will spend a lot of money up front, uh, and we were we really built it on the fly. Now we've got a pretty good mature infrastructure now. You know, nine and a half. Uh, years later, but in those first, you know, first uh, first few years, it was a, quite a bit of duct tape and bailing wire to kind of keep this thing together. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, one of the phrases I learned, uh, you know, from, from, from somebody else in the industry was the phrases, uh, lead with revenue. So instead of going and spending a whole bunch of money up front, figure out if you got a product or service that actually sell before you start to spend a whole bunch of money sort of developing the, the, the back end. And that's what, that's the way we approached it. So we really built it on the fly, but we did have enough technical chops to know that whatever was going to get thrown at us we could we could work with so there's enough technology of course aws was starting to become a uh, a thing um uh, obviously the uh, you know google apps and 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 facebook of course had just shown up on the scene 2007 2008 so we were able to sort of move a lot of our uh communication and collaboration onto the social networks we were actually using private facebook groups in the early days plus plus we were what, one of the things that makes us really unique is we operate the entire uh, business inside of a virtual world, which was um, so we're, we actually go to the office as avatars, which we we did from day one in 2009. We told everybody, you're going to we're, we're leaving our offices behind and we're going to log into the virtual campus and it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And if it doesn't work, we're going to go all find different, uh, different, uh, different jobs. Um, but it, it, fortunately, it worked. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, I right before we got on, you know, you told me you were speaking from Washington. I'm now in Washington State. I now think that you're probably were speaking from Bermuda. Uh, there's a good chance. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's a terrible joke. And I take that back. now. <laughs> so uh, so so in the early days of launching EXP, you know, what what were some of the growing pains starting out? Um, well, the first part, we started pretty pretty small. So we, in 2008, um, going into 2009, you know, we had to get rid of a ton of expenses because we were, you know, we had prior been, it wasn't huge, but 50000 a month was kind of our, our burn. Mm-hmm. And when, when transactions dropped significantly, uh, we had to get rid of a bunch of expenses. Uh, and then we had to, you know, come up with a new way of working in this, uh, you know, uh, the way that we, we did work. So those were the, kind of the bigger growing pains. A lot of people, of course, didn't, we only started with 24 agents. So it was a very small crew and, and we had about eight, seven or eight staff. So we had a lot of staff, not very many agents. And, uh, but it was just literally, we went to work every day, just trying to, to champion the idea and get people on the platform. We literally have had, I don't think we've had a single month since we launched where we had less agents on the platform the month after we, uh, the, you know, each month we've grown by, by, by some number of agents, even if it was just one or two. And that's been really cool. But with those growing pains, sometimes when we were growing really rapidly, 2015, uh, 2015, 16, and 17 were huge growth years for us in terms of percentage year over year growth. And trying to keep the wheels on the wagon um, when you're growing, you know, at 100%. Plus growth rate, it's uh, it can put a lot of stress on the systems, especially if the systems aren't totally built out yet. So, what was your competition doing? You know, during during these these times, you know, they probably saw that you launched. They see that you're growing. You you know, month after month, quarter over quarter, year over year. You know, what what was what what is what what does that competitive landscape really look like? Are you trying to get more listings? Or are you trying to get more agents to then put their listings on the platform? Yeah, so so really, it's the, the latter is is we we want to be attractive to agents. So we, we you know we pull over a lot of agents from a lot of different companies. You know, Keller Williams, Remax are current big big ones just because they've been around for a while and the agents are really primed for for our model. 
but the you know, competition for the most part, you know, really poo-pooed our model. Literally, you know, sort of, sort of gave us. We're trying to tell everybody how we weren't weren't sustainable. We couldn't scale. Uh, you know, speaking of the fact that we were we were we were a microcap back then, uh, trading on the OTC. You know, they they call us a penny stock, and they I mean they they would do a whole bunch of stuff to sort of sort of try to degrade our credibility as a company. Um, and, and yet, you know, we just every day just went, went to work, put our heads down and, and, and continue to deliver a great product for our agents. And so they, they join the platform and they, they bring their listings, they bring their buyers and, and, and business would increase. So what, for, so from the agent side, I mean, did they just, were they looking at that and just saying, you know what, we like the user interface, user experience better here than what we have been using? Like what, how did you win more of them over? Yeah, so it was really, um, really that leveraging of the cost savings and creating a better value proposition. So, we just, uh, I just, uh, the real deal just did an article here about a week or so ago and and talked about the economics. And uh, there's an analyst at um, uh, D. A. Davidson that did some research and just showed that agents, generally speaking, uh, make about 22 to 36 percent more on average at EXP versus the competition. Wow. And and so when you think about agents when they're out there and and uh, they eat what they kill when they can eat twenty two percent better that's not that's not a bad gig so so financially they're just better off but we also provide some of the some leading tech tools to them that you know generally they don't have available to them at their other brokerages and and so that helps them you know have a better better platform to generate leads and then and then convert those leads mm -hmm. so then when you're conceiving of the platform and this goes back a little bit earlier to the beginning and the launch of this you know how focused were you on bringing in the talent to develop out the platform uh pretty uh pretty significant i mean we were doing we did it all on a shoestring though i mean we we, we operated fairly low cost so we weren't spending you know millions of dollars up front on platforms we were spending you know tens or uh, maybe a hundred hundred plus thousand dollars in the early days now we're spending you know significantly more on 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 capex and 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 other uh, other expenditures to make sure that we've got state-of-the-art platforms but in the early stages we we iterated as we went. We had you know great great enthusiastic talent, and and then we you know we'd hire folks. Some of them remote, some of them domestic to to help us uh, fix problems in real time. But it, you know sometimes we got it right, and sometimes we had to go back and retool. Right, gotcha. So all right, so now we're going to transition into the capital market side of things. You know the the. Uh, it, it, I, I, you already alluded to this a little bit earlier when you, you answered one of my questions about uh, why the company did decide to go public. You wanted to have your agents be shareholders. You know, so then from there, what, what was the, the pros and cons conversation like and, and what ultimately then tipped the scale to going public as a microcap? Yeah, so um, I, as a microcap, you know, there obviously is a lot of debate and a lot of internal discussions on, you know, the, the merits of, of, of doing that method of being public. But I'd started the discussions actually even with one of our board members, uh, Randall Miles, back in 2008, 2009 about how to, how to have agents be shareholders. And agent, and it's pretty limited the, the the options because of the you know uh, accredited investor rules and other things. So private companies have their hands tied a bit in terms of being able to have their 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 people be sort of shareholders. They can you know have some options if there's a buyout or whatever. 
but to actually be shareholders than to have some liquidity around it, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, but it was 2012. I, I, you know, was at an event and just realized that I wasn't thinking big enough. And that was the point in time where we said, hey, we need to explore what it's going to take to become a public company so we can actually have people, be, our agents and brokers and staff for that matter, uh, be uh, be shareholders. Because we, we were growing about 50% year over year, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, and even going into 2014. But we were saying, hey, if we could add ownership as an additional ingredient to the mix, what would that do to our growth rate? And so what we, what our thesis was that it, agents aren't getting ownership anywhere else and that if they could get some ownership that, and that, and if that ownership was then quoted, they'd be, they'd be more interested in being with us than with the competition. So that's, that was really what we were, the reason why we went this this route because I've been really focused on agent ownership something that eluded me as an agent so so it's kind of kind of took us where we, we where we got to and 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 of course the 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 doing it through reverse merge is also somewhat um, you know that has all kinds of of, <laughs> of of warts that can be attached to that whole process yeah well I'd love to learn more about that and and then also uh, after after learning a little bit more about that process too the the RTO process. You know, I have to also know, you know, there must have been a question when you were talking with your board of directors about, all right, well, do we go right onto the OTC, NASDAQ and NYSE, you know, how did you also dis- decide, you know, okay, well, what exchange should we then be on if we're going to go public? Right. Well, th- those decisions were actually a little bit easier um, <laughs> in that we we weren't be- becoming a public company to fundamentally raise money. Um, and we didn't need to, to truly raise money. We raised a little bit um, here and there, but nothing no, nothing of significance um, relative to what we were we were trying to do. Um, and it was it was more just to give us a little bit of extra cushion in case we needed it more than than it than it because we we needed it just to operate just to get into business. So so we we did it for for a totally different reason. One of the cool things about uh, you know OTC, which at the time, and I, I assume that it's still the same, is that you could operate with a single director, and it sort of filled all the all the uh, all the elements of uh, you know president and CEO, treasurer, you know, and that type of thing. Um, we didn't do that for very long, but it it certainly helped in terms of being able to get from point A to point B. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're going all the way to, to NASDAQ or NYSE, I mean, there's a whole additional regulatory framework that just goes with the exchanges um, that uh, that made it a little bit easier and uh, to, to do OTC. Of course, the challenge is that, you know, a lot of institutions, if not most institutions, won't really touch OTC, but we didn't need them um, in, 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 in those early days. Um, because we, we really weren't, that wasn't really our target audience for being public. Right. No, you guys were more focused on the, on the retail side. So for you, it was like, all right, well, what's just the low cost solution to go public OTC. All right, done. Yep. So, so then, you know, so then going back to the first part of my question, the, the RTO process, you know, you mentioned that there's sometimes some warts going through that, you know, what, what was that, what was that process like for you guys? Yeah, so I fortunately had some experience. I mentioned having some experience with public markets back in the early, early days. Um, 
80, probably 87 through the probably early mid nineties, I'd been involved with at least 10 different companies that had done sort of an RTO kind of, kind of thing. And, and what I realized is that most of them shouldn't have been a public company to begin with. Um, and, and, but the, you know, their, their, you know, CEOs or whoever got sort of, you know, stars in their eyes and they'd said, Hey, we, we're going to become a, we're, we're going to become a public company for whatever reason they, they did. And they didn't really have a market and that type of thing. But for, for the RTO process, you know, we had a good friend of mine who, um, who, who had done some, some RTOs and I'd chat with him a bit. And, and so he, he did some work to find a uh, find uh, a, a shell, and and uh, then we had it, you know, really scrutinized to make sure that it was as clean as possibly could be. Which actually, we we were fortunate to be able to find a, a company that had actually was structured to be in the real estate business that had formed in like 2008, just before the dot com or, or just before the the collapse of the housing market, and so they never got into business, but they were actually geared toward being in real estate. So that was kind of cool that we found a company that was about as, as clean as you could get. And, uh, and then it was just, uh, you know, there was a fair bit of work. I mean, the legal costs were, you know, were, were not insignificant. The, the cost of the shell was not insignificant. Um, and, but, but, you know, getting it all together, I think we probably had a half million into it to, to actually get the, the RTO done. Um, but, but the upside benefit for us, you know, we, we believe that it was truly be a game changer for what we were doing. So, um, um, so we were willing to kind of go through that exercise, but it took better part of probably eight, nine months to go through that whole process to, Mm -hmm. to ultimately get everything put together. And lawyers wanted us to hire more lawyers, to hire (laughs) accountants, to, Hire more whatever. So professional services folks really like the RTO world. I can tell you that. From what I've seen. Um, (laughs) But um, so one question I have then on the RTO, because you mentioned that you guys kind of got fortunate in the sense that, you know, this was a relatively clean shell that you ended up, you know, reversing into. You know, what were some of the things that you look for? that would signal to you and eh, not not this show let's let's find something else that would work better for us you know what what are those things yeah i you know i don't know exactly how many shells that we looked at uh, we had a, a good good attorney that had done a, a fair bit of work with a very you know reputable uh, legal firm um so he did you know a fair bit of the the the, the heavy lifting and uh you know, he finally found one that was in really great, pristine shape. But, you know, companies that haven't quite been in business yet are certainly way cleaner than companies that have been in business mm. and then have had, you know, a bunch of debt and, and potentially undisclosed agreements that, you know, you don't know about even even if you get the the, 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 the shells. And so, and we we even learned that back in the '90s, there were some some companies you know, putting those deals together, and then somebody come out of the woodwork, and they'd have they they'd uh, show an agreement that somebody had you know some sort of claim on something, and that always you know created a created some challenges. So just I think the idea that the less business the company has done, if you're dealing with a shell, the better. Got it. And and you know for those who don't, and I probably should ask this first, but you know what for for those who don't know, you know exactly what a a shell is. You know, please, you know what what can you quickly define what that is? Well, a shell effectively is is two. Th- it could be two things, um, but for, for the most part, it's a company that didn't work out, and and so 
it's it's got all it's a it's a public company it's done all the work to become a public company uh and um but the underlying business is is not viable and so the company's just there and to some extent is looking for a project something that could uh, potentially return a little bit of capital to the existing shareholders and uh but uh uh, but so they're looking for a project that will go in it, and and if the comp- if the project's successful, you know they'll get some money out of it, and 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 maybe make some money. But for the most part, it's it's usually companies that the the previous project didn't work out exactly as planned, and so they just become a a, a shell of their former uh, self. <laughs> so thanks, Glenn. And uh, you know, look on the podcast, I'm known for uh, inductive uh, questioning as opposed to deductive. You know what I mean? So uh, you know, uh, I'm still working on that. Um, <laughs> so what what was then? your your process when you were putting together your board of directors it sounds like you already had a board going into this process but did you have to think a little bit differently now that okay we're going to be a public company you know what what how should i make up this board yeah you know we we went through uh, a little bit of uh iterative um board structuring so uh initially it was an entirely inside board, meaning that everybody was, uh, was part of the management team. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and on the OTC, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing fundamentally challenging about that. Um, the, uh, but when you start to think about, uh, company, especially when you're, you're, uh, closely held. And, and so if you, you know, own a majority of the stock and, and and uh, and you can it's really being run for a particular purpose. So so the board was originally just in inside folks. Uh, eventually, we said we, we did have ambitions to eventually uplist to Nasdaq and or 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 NYSE, but Nasdaq or it was kind of the where we thought we would end up going. So we started to look at, you know, what are going to be the qualifications uh, that we're going to be looking for. And so, you know, whether it be, you know, and who would be the independent board members. We talked to some folks over the years. Randall Miles, who's still on our board, um, was somebody that I'd been been talking with for the entire life of EXP and even prior to to EXP and wanted to, to have him on our board at some point because he just brought so much uh, wisdom. Um, and then we, you know, we added some additional uh, folks to the board. What we found out, though, is that um, that creating an entirely independent board to become uh, a NASDAQ-listed company um, can't have a, its own uh, challenges that go along with it. So we ended up going a little bit too um, independent, strong board members, great quality people, but to some extent, they're... Uh, they were probably more suited to much larger companies than we were. Mm-hmm. And, and so that created its own own rub and its own challenge. So we actually then elected in 2017 to exercise uh, myself and the second largest shareholder uh, elect to uh, go back to being a controlled company um, prior to sort of the, the uplist process to, to, to NASDAQ. And, and, uh, and that gave us... Uh, more ability to execute on the original vision of the company. We were running into a lot of the, um, the, I don't want to say risk averse nature, but I mean, the board is there to protect shareholders, but, um, but there, uh, when you go a little bit too risk averse, 
um, you know, you're you're inadvertently hurting, I think, shareholders as well. So we had to kind of get a rebalance the board back, and and that was uh, that was some work as well. But we've got great board members. You know, we've got Randall Miles, we got uh, Dan Dan Kaher on the board, who who comes from a, a family office background. We've and we've got uh, 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 Darren Jacklin, who's been on the board uh, since we became a, a a public company back in 2013. Um, so he's an independent board member. And then the rest of the team is Jason Guessing, who's been with me since 2010. Um, uh, Gene Frederick, who is a huge um, a player in the Keller system and, and is a huge player with us, too. Uh, and then we've got uh, Susie Truex, who's one of our agent uh, 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 members on the board. So uh, we're, we've got four effectively non-independent and three independent. And that seems to be a really a pretty good mix for us. We will eventually get to a fully independent board, but you know it's nice to have the uh, controlled um, company provisions to to be able to sort of steward the company at least uh, get us to a point where we're where the vision is locked in tight. Mm-hmm. And and when it came to the the board construction, was it important for you that not only that they had a shared vision, but also had experience in tech? And, and real uh, real estate. I mean, was that really important for you? So um, on the tech side, you know, we've we didn't really um, probably probably still need a little bit on the board side that strong tech. But I, you know, we've got a good tech group, and and I come from a tech background, so I probably represent the technology side on the board. But I think because of the the fiduciary responsibilities of board members, I think the key for us was to make sure that we had some really high integrity individuals, especially when it came to sort of the financial side. So that's where you know Randall Miles and and, mm-hmm. and Dan Cahir really are great board members because they really truly care deeply about um, you know integrity of 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 all of that. Not that we. Don't, it, it just, but, but, but no, you, th- we, we got you. We got you. <laughs> but, but having, having good board members that really can just make sure, because quite frankly, I, as the largest single shareholder, I, my goal is to eventually step back to being just a shareholder. And so, so getting, you know, really good board members in that regard is, is probably as important as anything. So one, one last question on board construction, you know, how did you balance the, or, or did your board members have, uh, did they have experience being board members for other public companies or were they, or were they new, were, were they now new board members uh, for EXP or this was their first experience doing that? You know, how did you balance those two? Yeah. So I was the only one in the early stages that had previous public company board experience. Actually, Darren Jacklin did as, uh, as well. So he, he had a little bit of public company board experience. Um, uh, and then, uh, and certainly when we added Randall Miles, um, you know, he's, he's been on numerous boards of public companies and, and brings a lot of experience. So, you know, we do lean heavily on, on, on Randy for that. Um, and then, and then Dan Kaher, uh, with his involvement as being um, uh, involved with uh, some pretty significant family offices and investing in public and private companies and sitting on a lot of private boards, th- those are those really added some great elements to that. The rest of the board members um, haven't, but uh, you know we've had to you know we've done a lot of education. We brought in 
you know, uh, legal teams tra- training the boards, running them through a lot of the, the things that they need to be uh, aware of and, and uh, have them be as involved as possible uh, in, in that side of things. So, so th- that's kind of the way we've looked at the, the board so far. Uh, and we would expect as we get larger, um, you know, we'll have more board members with public company experience for sure. So as the CEO of a publicly traded microcap company with a fast growing tech business, you know, how did you balance the responsibilities of business operator and CEO? Yeah, so um, that's a great question because we we started, I mean, when when I started the company and we'll say as a uh, it was a total, I was totally hands-on operation, um, and I've hired you know all of the first employees, all of the various folks that joined us, and then transitioning to being a public company CEO uh, is a is a different animal because it's I'm no longer doing the work, and whereas I used to refer to myself as the highest paid assistant in real estate <laughs> um, because I I literally was in there. You know, working on you know various parts of the business as as any individual would be. So I, I have a really intimate knowledge of of the processes that that the individuals do. But now it's more uh, I'm working more on the telling the bigger story, the vision, um, keeping the alignment side piece right, working on the culture side, and and then obviously having um, conversations with the uh, you know outside and inside. Uh, in, you know, investors and shareholders and those types of things. So we, we have uh, just recently in November, we added uh, Jeff Whiteside joined us um, uh, and he he had been involved with GE Capital and, and has really good operations, hands-on uh, abilities. And, and it's been really great to have him on board because since he's joined, uh, I've noticed that my need to be as hands-on has reduced significantly. And I think that we're actually getting becoming more effective. So it's really getting the right people on the team. Um, and then uh, once they're on the team, then then my job gets way easier. But it's been, you know, a lot of a lot of 60, 70, 80 hour weeks over the years to, to get to where we're at. I was going to say, like in those early microcap days from, you know, starting in 2013, I mean, you know, it's a lot of, you know, you're growing this, you're, you have to be there. To, to facilitate this growing business. But, you know, I mean, we saw you at conferences. You're go- probably going to many of them over the year, answering investor calls. I mean, during those times, I mean, at, at what point were you just like, all right, I need to percentage-wise this much focus on the business and then this much focus on talking to investors and going out to the capital markets and telling the story? Yeah, well, one of the things that we do, which is really unique, and we've done a couple of these in the past, but we'll literally invite, like, you know, investors into our virtual campus. So, which gives it, it's almost like they get to visit the office and uh, well, you talked about Bermuda earlier, which is your <laughs> bad joke, but, but sometimes uh, I, I am a avid boater, but because of high speed internet, I can be literally in a Marina, um, you know, uh, tied up to the dock, um, got a good internet connection and I can be walking investors through our office, introducing them to different people in the company, walking them through a deck and, uh, and and so the ability, we call it the four A's, to work with anyone from anywhere on anything at any time is sort of a, something that we, we think about. And, and everything that we do um, is designed to facilitate that kind of working uh, element. And that includes, you know, working with staff as well as, you know, investors and, and others. 
So then what was the thesis that you knew? If, if I hit these inflection points, EXP will start to recognize that fast growth in shareholder value. Yeah, so the, the inflection points, generally speaking, um, we, this, this last year, we were the fastest growing real estate company by, uh, I believe, transaction volume in the country. Um, so it was a big, big growth year and first company in all 50 states. But the, I think getting to, to the 50 states, which really we only did last year, but getting that was for us a big one because we're the first company to be in all 50 states. And, and because of the value proposition that we provide to agents, if, we, if we're not in certain markets, part of their value proposition is diminished. So, so one of the things was, you know, how do we get to all 50 states as quickly as possible? Certainly, there are some companies or some, some um, states, uh, you know, Rhode Island's not a huge state, but, but it's still a state that we need, we need to get into. And same thing with like uh, South Dakota. But we're in those those states now, and and so it really creates a really great blanket opportunity for everyone um, that is with EXP. And now that we're we're pretty much across Canada, we got a couple more provinces yet to go, and we're now truly looking at international expansion, UK and Australia, which we announced uh, uh, earlier in the month um, that we're growing into. Uh, we're finally at a, uh, I think we're finally at an inflection point that. I feel good about the long-term sustainability of the company. Mm-hmm. I think for quite a while, uh, I mentioned being hands-on. The hands-on part was, are, are we? We're not there yet, and I would say in the last 12 months, we finally hit that. Now we hit some inflection points along the way, but none of them were as monumental as the ones we've we really um, hit in the last 12 months. So mm-hmm. the, the other ones were pretty minor and important. But uh, thousand agents back in 20, uh, 2016, that was a big one, February 29th. Um, but uh, yeah. So what what then was your your communication strategy? You know, back when you were a microcap, because you know, look, I, I've done thousands of interviews with CEOs, and you know, I'll always ask, you know, from what you can tell me, what are some of your growth drivers? And you guys do conference calls, and you know, you always get those questions of, you know, well, what can we look forward to? Where's Where's the growth opportunity? All, all these different types of questions to help investors, you know, either support their thesis or build upon their thesis. So what was your strategy when it came to the communication of, you know, we're going to have this many realtors on our platform by this date or, you know, uh, we're going to have this many listings? You know, what what was your thought process so that you weren't maybe too leading, but at the same time, you you kind of gave a little nugget of of information as to what's what's coming up for the company yeah um we what we what we've done and, and i you know i run my own personal charts and anybody can do this it's not that difficult so but you'll you'll you know, but basically what i would do is i just chart out uh you know when we hit certain numbers and and the trend lines were pretty obvious for mm-hmm. us um last year we were a little bit over ambitious with our agent count numbers early in the year and so to, to some extent, we decided that I don't want egg on my face again. So we're really not giving um, as much in, in the way of forward direction. We also, for us, we're a little bit unique in that our primary shareholder is also our agent. And, and uh, meaning that we're more geared toward 
toward them as being our primary audience relative to um, investor communication. Now we communicate everything to everyone, but when we think about who who we're trying to to, to build this for, um, we think about the agents as being long term, multi year. Uh, in some cases, they they use the term generational wealth kind of kind of wealth creation for them and their families as they as they work their way through the EXP ecosystem and 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 build long term careers with us, and so they they become our really our our focus. And what we've noticed is that the the best uh, institutional shareholders like that really long term focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as opposed to trying to hit some sort of quarterly number or quarterly target, what's interesting is a lot of the long-term shareholders go sort of sort of ask us to to indirectly to hey, avoid doing uh, the uh, the investor um, uh, quarterly calls as long as possible. So we don't do quarterly calls. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not we're not doing some of those because it, the the whole idea is to to build this for the long haul as opposed to build it for sort of quarterly, quarter by quarter. And uh, so far it's, it's worked for us. Right, so, it's, so it sounds like in terms of that investor communication, you, you learn from experience that you know, it's, it's better to be conservative in the way in which you divulge information you know, and, and kind of just let the results speak for themselves. It sounds like that was your route. It, it it was and it, and and it still is. It's uh you know we we we've got a little bit of of uh, guidance out there. We've we've certainly uh, shared um, you know the idea that you know of sort of agent count toward the end of the year uh, being in a really large range twenty five to thirty thousand agents is our range and and um, and that's about as much guidance as we're we're providing in terms of of agent count. So. Mm-hmm. So then, and you kind of already alluded to this next question as well, but I, I have to ask again, you know, how, how did you balance then focusing on company performance versus telling the EXP story to the investing public? You know, did you did you kind of follow the philosophy of uh, investors will find the story because we're, we are performing, no need to go out and, and market the company? Or were you more like, we are performing, therefore I want to get on the road uh, and, and, and talk with current and potential new investors? Yeah, um, so a little bit of both. Um, you know, in the in a lot of a lot of the investor relations companies want you to go to the shows, and 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 so we've we've consciously said we're we're going to go to a maximum of four different investor events a year, so one a quarter, and. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, you certainly can, there's plenty of them to go to, so it's not like we couldn't go to m- more, but we felt like that's a good cadence to get an, at least enough awareness out there. And then what we, what we have found though, is that the, 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 the better shareholders, at least the way that we've sort of looked at it, most of them have found them, found us on their own. Now, not all of them. We've got some g- great shareholders that were introduced to us through either the, 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 the banks doing research or or through the IR channel but uh, you know some of the some of our our good long-term shareholders they they did their independent research and found it so I think we have to do a little bit of both mm-hmm. and and you know I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about financings you mentioned you did a, a very small one at the time of the RTO you know so mo- most microcaps 
as as most of my listeners know, they 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 have to raise money at some point in their life cycles. That, and so, you know, what what are some of the things to look out for and consider as a CEO of a microcap when you're looking to raise capital? You know, what what worked for you? Yeah, well, we had an internal audience of, of true believers in what we were doing. So that for us was probably the best thing that could happen to us. So, you know, one of the challenges, of course, for a lot of the a lot of the financings that are out there, especially for microcaps, is they have so many provisions that are not really favorable to um, to to shareholders and and the company in general. Um, but that's that tends to be the predominant um, financing vehicles. And so what we've what we were able to do was was really work with our own our own potential inside shareholders that you know are accredited investors and, and provide a vehicle for them. So the, if you can build a product or service that really appeals to your customer um, and that you know is a game changer, uh, in my opinion, they're going to invest in you on much more favorable terms than trying to go to the um, finance marketplace um, to, to try to get financing. So my, my advice would be to, to try to build just a world-class product that, that your, your customers want to invest in. And if, if you do that, then you're going to get, you're going to be in a, in better shape to, to get a private placement or, or some sort of, uh, some sort of terms or around what you're doing. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my uh, perspective and, and advice. So at the time where you getting uh, you know, back in the 2013 timeframe, I mean, were you getting those three to four or five calls a week or even a day? <laughs> oh, it was, it, yeah. I mean, we, 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 we get uh, so many offers of, you know, effectively toxic financing terms. And then even, and even when we went to conferences to some extent, some of the, some of the, some of the conferences, some of the folks that were there were there to pitch some pretty crappy financing. So, um, so, you know, that, and, and so it was, uh, you know, when we're different, different place now, but, uh, you know, what I, I guess my biggest counsel is don't be desperate. If you, if you're, if you're desperate for money, you probably need to figure out something, something else, uh, then to try uh, Cause you know, those, the, there's a lot of folks that will, you know, take advantage of the, the opportunity. Of course, they're trying to make money just like everybody else, but, and, and maybe they're taking a big risk as well. Uh, but if you've built a really great product or service, then, uh, you know, work with the folks that believe in you. Got it. So then what was the big turning point for EXP that, that has seen it grow from a micro cap to a small cap? Um, well, I think, you know, obviously growing, you know, top line revenues and, and, and being in an industry where we've got lots of really enthusiastic sales professionals, some of them who are affluent in their own right, uh, that could sort of, sort of put the dots together. I think that was, those really helped, um, you know, as a microcap OTC, I mean, when we, when we uplisted the NASDAQ, we had almost zero institutional ownership. I think, you know, 20,000 shares or something, or 40,000 shares of ownership, um, that had probably been acquired when we were two or three or $4 a share. So it was pretty, pretty minimal in terms of that, that piece. But, but yet we had, really a great rise on the on on on, on the stock price the, the the volumes and everything else not that we're usually liquid as a company um but we're we're certainly way more liquid than we used to be trade you know and and uh 
but having an enthusiastic, uh, you know, base of, of, of folks that we were addressing their market and their needs, that really, I think that was one of the significant ingredients to creating the momentum to ultimately, you know, move up and become a small cap company. Mm. And, and I got to ask too about the uh, uplisting because we just published a panel where where we had uh, some experts talking about uplisting and and, mi- and micro caps. You know, so for you guys, because you did mention earlier that you know the primary reason for going public was to appeal to more of a retail audience. So I'm guessing there was some influence as to okay, it's time to uplist to potentially gain more of those institutional investors you know what was the what was the decision pro- process there to then go to nasdaq yeah so it's so really what we were the reason the primary reason why we're moving up to nasdaq was we were still getting a fighting um with uh inside of our industry with people basically saying that you're trading otc or you're a penny stock it's you know and, and whatever they they make up stories and one of our big competitors literally called our under some of our underlying technology Donkey Kong technology, <laughs> uh, which which I thought was funny. So so we actually used the the phrase when we rang the Nasdaq bell in uh, January, as we like to say at EXP, it's on like Donkey Kong. So that was my, my <laughs> little uh, my little uh, sort of sort of uh, slap back. But uh, uh, but we wanted to basically uh, from a credibility standpoint, um, you know, OTC can you know has its has its own set of uh, of, uh, of beliefs that go around with it because there are a lot of companies that don't make it off of the OTC and ultimately you know have challenges and go 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 downhill. So uh, for us, it was really a credibility piece rather than institutional shareholders. Now, flip side of is as we we're now we're able to see in pretty good detail that we, you know, we've got uh, we've got institutional shareholders going up but you know we've got you know we also have a larger short selling base so we've got kind of a mix of of folks that we weren't used to seeing when we were OTC what what has been the biggest learning lesson being CEO of a publicly traded microcap and now a small cap company um Probably how important it is to know what your core business is. Um, I think one of the challenges of being a CEO in a public company is that the word shareholder can be weaponized by others to try to manipulate you from your stated goals. And, um, and, and so... Uh, the one thing is just just really understanding that you, even though you're not a private company anymore, if you were building a great private company, then stick to what made you uh, made you a great private company when you become a public company. Because once you become a public company, you get a lot of people that have you know varied interests as to why they want to be shareholders. And uh, you get varied interest as to the types of advice that you get um, and um, and how just the word public markets and public shareholders uh, can be used to try to take you out of your game. Uh, so that's probably my, my biggest takeaway is know what business you're in and deliver on that business and, and shareholders will get rewarded on that. Don't try to reward shareholders first because if you do – in a lot of cases, you'll end up not having a business. And then what advice do you have for CEOs of private companies looking to go public as a microcap or new CEOs of public publicly traded microcap companies? 
I, I think is similar to what I was talking about earlier is recognize that a uh, a public company um, is is simply a more visible company from a shareholder perspective. Certainly, the ability to for for people to move in and out of your shares is is a real thing, uh, which you don't have as a private company. But the key is 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 build something still for the long run for the long haul and the shareholders that are going to join you on the journey if they know you're building a long, a company with a long-term vision they'll stick with you over the long run if they think you're in it for the short run um, they'll be out in the short term too so so you know making sure that you truly are delivering a long-term uh, value proposition to your customer um, your employees and then by extension your shareholders so Glenn, thank thank you for that advice and for all of your insights today. So so where can my audience go and find more information about EXP World Holdings? Yeah, so so first and foremost, go to expworldholdings.com and and definitely check that site out. Uh, on the realty side, exprealty.com. So you'll be able to search properties uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada. And then on our virtual world for business side, uh, check out verbella.com. And uh, those would be the three sites I would check out. Glenn, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun and uh, look forward to our, our next update. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Glenn, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast or on Stitcher or Spotify and also search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send me an email at info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great weekend.